Life is full of small lessons if you are willing to stop and pay attention to them. Everyone has a story, and the points where our stories intersect not only define us, those are the moments where we find out who we really are and if we're willing to grow. I'm Noah Chalaya, and I invite you to come along as we explore the powerful nature of alcohol and addiction on this episode of The School of Hard Knocks. to understand people who struggle with substance abuse, I need to meet these people face-to-face, hear the story firsthand, and begin to see the world through their eyes. My first stop is with Cal Datz. He's a free-through recovery care coordinator and an addiction management coach with Face It Together. What I love about Cal is every opinion is formed from first-hand knowledge. Cal isn't just an addiction specialist. He's fought his own battle with addiction and won. Growing up, I was a good kid, you know, I had good parents, both of them were doctors, I had everything I ever needed growing up, I had good friends and everything, um, and I, you know, it's, it's been hard to pinpoint, but I think over the years I've uh, sort of settled on this idea that a large part of my addiction stemmed from sort of social anxiety, and my social anxiety stemmed from a low self-esteem. So I, I grew up mostly in Bismarck, moved to Dickinson and at the age of 14, and that was the very first time I tried any drugs. I tried weed when I moved to Dickinson, and I think that was partly related to uh, sort of the trauma of trying to find new friends, trying to fit in with everybody, and there was just cannabis was around, so I started doing it. I started liking it, uh, started drinking a little bit, nothing too crazy. Um, but my parents saw me going down a road that didn't look good, and they sent me to a boarding school. Uh, I got kicked out of that boarding school for smoking weed. I lived in Atlanta, Georgia with my aunt and uncle for a couple of years. And then finally, senior year in high school, I was able to move back home to Bismarck, uh, where my parents had moved back to. So I was 18. That was my senior year. And that's when I started you know, smoking harder, drinking harder. And that's when my drug use really became you know, symptomatic, uh, problematic. It became very much problematic. Not to say that, you know, at the age of 14, any substance use is going to be a little bit problematic. I shouldn't have been doing that. Uh, but I really started developing addiction when I moved back to Bismarck at the age of 18. I'm what you would call a poly drug user. I used a little bit of everything, but my addiction my physical addiction was with opioids, you know, morphine, Dilaudid, heroin, uh, all, all the opioids. And the other drugs, you know, I used them problematically. I used them excessively at that time. But opioids are, are really, you know, the substance that, that just dragged me down. That was like my real, that was a real addiction, very real physical addiction. Couldn't get out of bed. Couldn't think, you know, withdrawals are very real, very severe not very physical, you know, not inside my head. At the beginning of my my recovery, the first year I was relapsing, I just wasn't in a place to commit entirely. And if I would have gotten in trouble, if I would have gotten all tangled up in the justice system, who knows how long that would have prolonged the process. You know, I'd still be suffering the wrath of of that legal legal situation today. It, for the rest of my life, employment would be hard, student loans, I wouldn't have ever gotten any of that. 
I would have not had any opportunity to better my life and build my confidence and feel good about what I'm doing now. It would have been so much harder. Free Through Recovery is a, a state a state-funded program designed to reduce recidivism. So what happens is someone that has, you know, gotten themselves entangled in the criminal justice system uh, will be referred to a free through recovery care coordinator. My purpose in that role is to really streamline the process of recovery. Uh, for example, one one guy, you know, I need to help him. He's from a different country, and I need to help him get his passport and everything he needs, all the documents he needs to get a state ID so that he can work. He wants to work. He's ready to work. He wants to provide for his family. Um, there's just all these hurdles. He doesn't have transportation. He doesn't have the finances. He doesn't know, doesn't have a computer or internet service, doesn't know where to turn. So I'll sit with these people and help them on my computer. We'll sit and we'll Google everything and we'll fill out the forms we need and we'll, sub we'll drive around together and submit the forms we need. You know, I really love that I'm not office bound in that role. I, I'm able to really do what we need to do, go where we need to go, meet where we need to meet and kind of streamline that for them. I can't imagine trying to do that without the support. In my addiction, getting well, a large piece of that uh, was having that support network, my family to fall back on, uh, to schedule appointments, to to do research. And I mean, I wanted to get well. I wanted to be well. Uh, but I, uh, you know, taking the initiative would have been a whole different story. I wouldn't have known where to start. My goal is to be that hub of support that my family was. In my addiction management coaching role, uh, what I do is a lot of reframing, you know, kind of sitting down with, with a client and sort of figuring out the emotional root of where they're where their problems are coming from. And it's person-centered. Uh, so the idea is, you know, you know what you want and you have knowledge of what you need to do to get there. And my goal is to, is to basically understand their situation and help them clarify what their goals are and how to reach those goals. <clears throat> and when I say reframing, uh, what I mean is basically learning a new way to think about things that is conducive to growth uh, for example, when I was fresh out of my addiction, trying to get well from my addiction, um, I thought of myself in a very derogatory fashion, uh, sort of just as like a useless drug addict, a nobody, sort of really low self-esteem, not understanding the potential I, I could reach if I would just learn how to think about things and how to behave. Uh, so, so an example of reframing, this is, this is one of the things that we really do a lot of in the coaching sessions is at the beginning of my addiction, I relapsed for a solid year. And uh, to reframe it, I had to learn to, th to find the value in it, the use. You know, The only way I was going to get well, well was if I was able to identify the use in my experience and sort of let that boost me and, and push me forward. And the use I, the way I chose to reframe my relapsing was that it served the purpose of making me fed up of relapsing. Each relapse brought me one relapse closer to no more relapse. And, you know, to reframe my addiction as a, in, instead of thinking of myself as, you know, having just, just no, nothing, knowing nothing, being nobody, 
it's led to a career opportunity. I learned a lot of stuff. I learned what I don't want out of life. And I learned, you know, very introspective things about myself that I could bring to the table to help others learn. Anytime anything bad happens in life, there's, you know, you really do have to learn to reframe it. And everyone does that automatically on their own, kind of as, you know, the grieving or as time goes on, you know, time heals all wounds. And what happens during that process is reframing. Having done this for a while and walked through this struggle with a number of different people, all with different backgrounds, have you noticed any common threads, anything that might be useful to somebody who is listening to this and saying, I might be entering down that road to recovery in the near future? One thing I have been noticing is, is and I just recently really connected these dots, is how important having hobbies really is and having you know, building different skills that allow you to feel competent. Building competence builds your self-esteem. Being good at something builds your self-esteem. And that is something I was greatly lacking in my days of using. I, 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 you know, I didn't know, I didn't understand that I could be good at anything. And so I didn't have competence or confident confidence. And, you know, I think that really plays a big role in addiction. What role, if any, do you see the legal system having in telling people which drugs are right for them? If you were to go to a hospital and you were prescribed a life-saving blood pressure medication, I don't think anybody would classify that as being addicted to blood pressure meds, but at the same time, you are relying on them. So how do you differentiate between relying on drugs and being addicted to them? We ought to leave it up to the individual. An individual knows when they have a problem. A person is able to decide or be aware, like, you know, this isn't how I want my life to be. You, you hear legalize all drugs. You know, if you hear that, immediately red flags go up. And, and that's entirely understandable. The, the legal status of drugs right now is not doing anybody any good. You know, it's not making it safe for people to speak up about their addictions. People hide their addiction until it's entirely out of control. And a large part of that stems from the legal status of drugs. How do you deal with that at Face It Together? How do you tackle that or try to combat that problem? Like I said, you know, one of the beautiful things that really attracted me to Face It Together was that harm reduction orientation. And one thing that I think Face It Together, Face it Together does very, very well is focusing on the entire wellness of an individual, like their entire life, you know, employment, uh, human connection and relationships and sort of sort of coaching people along to to do all these other things they need to do in their life to build a life of wellness and focusing on that the wellness of the individual as a whole as opposed to being what the field has has done somewhat incorrectly is overemphasize the importance of abstinence where it's very much you know treatment and rehabilitation is very much focused entirely on the substance and abstaining entirely from the substance. So as soon as a person has a relapse or, or a recurrence of sim symptoms, you know, engages in alcohol use or drug use, immediately they've failed. They'll be kicked out of treatment in a lot of cases. I think nowadays there's, there's different orientations out there that are kind of getting up to speed where it's like, you know, you need, if you're going through treatment and you have a relapse, 
the treatment center is essentially at that point saying you can't turn to us for help with your addiction. You can't turn to us for help with your relapse. Otherwise you'll be kicked out. And that really, you know, that defeats the purpose. Whereas the harm reduction orientation comes from this idea where like, okay, so that happened. Let's analyze what happened. Why, what were you thinking? What was your mindset? What were the factors in your life that led to this decision? Um, And how do we fix that? How do we amend that for the future? I think oftentimes public perception is that social workers are out to get people. They're out to take kids away from parents. They're out to demonize drug users. Do you see social workers being a part of the solution or are they part of the destruction? One area I think that is destructive is this law where if you aren't paying child support for however long, they revoke your license. You know, I have a client right now who is trying very hard. He's doing everything he should be doing. Um, and, and he lost his license. So now how's he going to get to work? Is an addiction a choice or is it a disease? There is choice involved. I made a choice to use drugs at the beginning. Eventually though, my brain changed. And at that point, you know, I had a very physical situation going on in my body that would resemble a disease. So I think, I think the question, I think we make too much importance out of it in society. Is it a choice or is it a disease? I think the real question is how do we help? Uh, because, well, 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 maybe it isn't entirely arbitrary. You know, there's reason to refer to it as a disease. And there's also reason to refer to it as a choice. I think it's a little bit of both. And acknowledging that is important. Whether it's a disease or a choice doesn't change the way it's treated. It doesn't change the way we ought to see humanize people. I mean, does it? People are still in the same situation. They, they want to get help. They're struggling. And, you know, the only, the only difference I, I suppose is going to be with, uh, whether it's listed in the DSM and is, can be, have insurance applied to it if it's a disease. Suboxone and others like it are a hot button issue in the drug world. Essentially, Suboxone fills the same receptors that the drugs would fill so the user doesn't experience a high, but also isn't going to go through withdrawals. Now, many people believe that Suboxone shouldn't be provided at the cost of the taxpayer because it was the drug user's choice to start using. And the analogy that I've always used in the past is a diabetic made a choice to drink a big gulp. They did not make the choice to develop diabetes. In the same light, a drug user may have made a choice to get high, but they didn't choose addiction. Yes, one follows the other. If you make a choice, addiction will follow. If you drink a big gulp, diabetes will follow. I'm not removing personal responsibility from the discussion, but I have to ask, if we cover insulin through insurance for diabetics, why is there a different standard for drug users? It's, it comes down to harm reduction. What, what is the alternative? You know, and, and it also ties into the idea of, once again, the, one of the alternatives is that they're, they're in jail. They're staying stuck in the criminal justice system. If Suboxone enables a person to be productive and live a life that they want and reach goals and have a family, like, I mean, it has for me. It continues to for me. I've been on Suboxone for seven years, and it's been 
a really big platform for recovery for me. You know, I think we ought to afford people that opportunity. And and when you're talking about allocating tax funds or insurance money to things like Suboxone or Methadone or whatever uh, medication-assisted treatment is used for that individual, it, it comes down to harm reduction. And if you're enabling someone to live a productive life, you're doing a good thing for society. It's in society's best interest in that case. Is there anybody willing to fight for these people? If there is a client and they are doing what they need to be doing, they are taking the necessary steps to recover from addiction, and all of a sudden social services gets involved and starts poking their fingers around, starts trying to take kids away, starts trying to take driver's license away, is there anybody out there that can go to them and say, listen, this person is trying to better their lives. They are trying to turn this thing around. And the last thing that they need right now is for you to stick your big fat fingers in here, back off, give them some time. We will get this handled and everybody will come out ahead. Yep. That, that is one of the things that I will do uh, for free recovery clients that are engaged in the program that are working towards bettering their lives. You know, I've heard of uh, coordinators at, um, what a child protection kind of advocating and, and coming at it with a very appropriate attitude of, you know, my goal is not to take away your kids. My goal is not to ruin your life. I let's, let's help you get going here. What, you know, how do we help you get going? So yeah, I, I do do a little bit of that. And I think, I think it kind of is going to come down to the individual there. It's surprising how much individual choice there is, you know, by each coordinator care coordinator when it comes to that kind of thing. What can people who don't have any experience with drug or alcohol addiction do to help facilitate the recovery of people who are struggling? If the biggest thing is uh, people are afraid because of stigma, people don't feel comfortable reaching out because they're going to lose their job or Child Protective Services is going to come in because they find out that someone has an alcohol addiction. Uh, you know, one of the bigger things is going to be reducing that stigma rehumanizing people with addiction, seeing them as people. Most people that have addiction want out. You know, you hear the argument that we don't want to waste tax dollars on a program like that, but either way, you have to consider what the other option is. You know, they, they never get well, they never get help. They stay in the criminal justice system. They stay in prison. They stay in jail. Then you're, you're spending tax dollars there. It's a better solution to allocate the tax dollars towards helping people reach a level of independence that puts them in a place where they're able to give back to the community and sort of able to work and able to live and take care of family. And uh, that way you don't, you have less broken homes and you just have, it, it's just, and it's, it also comes from a place of compassion. We want to do what's good in this world. We want to help people so that there's just more joy. The more people that are hurting, I think we see these side effects of, of violence and crime and stuff. You know, if we can help people get out of that cycle, which is what free through recovery does and addiction management coaching and stuff like that, counseling and therapy and all that does, you know, that's just better for everybody, not just the individual that's getting tangled up in the criminal justice system. I think most people would agree that one of the keys to solving the drug crisis in America is to provide better education to children. I'm told that part of the problem is we are not honest with kids. We lump marijuana, for example, in with the heroines and the meths of the world. 
We then tell kids, don't try any drugs, not even once. You might overdose or you might get addicted. And then kids go out and they try alcohol. Nothing bad happens. So they try marijuana and nothing bad happens. And they start to believe that they were lied to. They were lied to about alcohol. They were lied to about marijuana. So maybe they can try meth. And then they learn the hard way that the education system was not lying to them about meth. That does have real consequences and real addictive properties. And you can overdose even the first time. That essentially is, is sort of, that's essentially how my story goes. You know, um, like I said, I started smoking, smoking cannabis when I was young and I had heard growing up that it was addictive and this and that. And for whatever reason, I tried it anyways. And I eventually learned that I wasn't having any sort of withdrawal. I didn't experience any addiction. I had started and smoked, started and stopped smoking cannabis so many times without any real hurdle that, that cannabis as a template for what addiction is, is, is inaccurate, you know? So, so then the stretch, it's not as much of a stretch reaching out to try different drugs. I basically, it led me not to believe that addiction is real. I thought addiction was, was made up. I thought it was propaganda. I, I just didn't believe addiction was a thing until I had tried some of these other drugs. And like you said, kind of smacked, smacked in the face, right off your feet. Like, wow, addiction is a real thing. You know, when I was using cannabis, thinking about addiction, I, I did feel that addiction was mental. I felt it was all mental. Like, oh, if I want to quit, I can. So yeah, discovering that addiction was very physical, very real. Um, resembling a disease uh, was quite a surprise because I was lied to as a kid. You use the qualifier, any real hurdles. Marijuana advocates would say that there is no downside to using marijuana. It's not an addictive substance. It doesn't have addictive properties. Is that true? I do have people that come in that have been using cannabis all of their life for 25 years, very heavy smokers, and getting under probation, they're required to stop, and they will have some side effects. I'm not trying to advocate that people go ahead and smoke cannabis. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just I'm saying that we need to reframe the way we think about substance use and people that use substances. It would be culturally inappropriate to put a sign in grandpa's bathroom that says a balanced meal is a heroin syringe in each hand, right? But it would be perfectly culturally acceptable to have a sign in grandpa's bathroom that says a balanced meal is a beer in both hands. Do we need to reframe the way that we think and look at alcohol? Alcohol is a drug. You know, the, the, the pharmacological definition of a drug is taking any substance, water included, that changes your physiology, that changes your thinking, that changes your brain chemistry and body chemistry, therefore making alcohol a drug, therefore making the light waves in this room a drug, really, you know, I mean, I'll feel more alert in a differently lighted room or a highly lighted room. I think there's a disconnect from that realization that disconnect allows people to demonize certain drugs over others. 
each drug does have a unique effect and alcohol does have a unique effect and they each each drug and alcohol has its own unique addiction profile some drugs are going to be more addictive and others aren't and so in some regard it maybe is warranted to demonize certain drugs there's this cultural idea that alcohol is cool the coolest guy in the room if you can drink the most the fastest and then you start talking about cannabis or other different drugs and everyone's like, whoa, 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 hold on a minute here. What are you talking about? You know, they're all drugs. Uh, you, you know, we have to be able to use substances responsibly, including alcohol. We need to reframe the way we see alcohol consumption as well as all substance consumption. You're not allowed to consume alcohol in most states until you're 21 years old, which means those first three years of college, you're going into a environment where drinking is very prevalent and you don't have any past drinking experience. Also, because it's illegal, that means that you're sitting in the dorm. You want to go out with friends. You know you're not going to be able to drink once you get to the party. So what happens? You down shot after shot. You pregame. You consume all of the alcohol inside of the safety of your dorm room or inside of the safety of your apartment. And it leads to very unhealthy drinking habits. I've heard of people shooting 21 shots in a night, alcohol poisoning level consumption of alcohol because kids are not being taught how to responsibly consume alcohol. In other countries, for example, parents sit down to dinner with their kids and show them how to have a glass of wine, how to have a beer. And so they learn how to responsibly consume alcohol and it's not a novelty to them. Is that a problem in this country? Yeah, I, I think it really is. You know, like you, like you mentioned in some countries, um, they'll allow drinking at 16 and parents, parents will drink with their 16 year olds or even, you know, younger. I don't know how young, but, but the point in doing that, the argument for that is that you can s model appropriate drinking behavior, uh, because, you know, having no experience with drinking, like you were pointing out, and then suddenly, uh, moving to college and having access to alcohol without having an idea of what it looks like to drink responsibly because you'd never done it before. Well, you know, what do we expect? That's what's going to happen. It's the same idea with sex education. It's a very good analogy. You know, if you tell people, um, if you give people no sex education and, and do abstinence only and expect them to know what to do when the time comes that they're ready to engage in like intimate uh, interactions, then they're, they're, they're just simply not going to know what to do. They've, they've not been educated on how to be responsible. Drugs are, for the most part, still against the law. And so the only responsible thing to do if you don't want to wind up in jail is to abstain from drugs. Alcohol is a slightly different story, though. We can purchase alcohol at a number of different stores. You can purchase alcohol at a number of different establishments when you go out to eat. So my question to you is, is it possible once somebody has developed a problem with drugs and or alcohol to walk that alcohol consumption back to a responsible level? Well, that's where, you know, the harm reduction model, there's there's treatments around the United States now and around the world that are doing harm reduction treatment, you know, and if the person's goal is to cut down on their alcohol consumption, then the treatment facility helps them figure out how to do that how to drink responsibly. You know, if the goal is to learn how to drink responsibly, then there is an argument to be made that we ought to be helping people learn how to drink responsibly. You know, 
because otherwise, if we don't, if we don't offer that service and abstinence only is the only option, then then you're not giving this person any skills towards, you know, learning how to drink responsibly. Uh, for the most part, I think it's safe. It's safer to try to abstain. I think that's probably the safer thing. Anyone, you know, for, for myself, I have an addictive personality. And for me, it's probably safer to abstain. However, I'm not willing to do that. You know, I'll enjoy a couple of drinks here and there. And I've trained myself to drink responsibly. I don't drink to excess. I don't drink and drive. I don't get crazy and reckless when I drink. You know, I'll have a couple drinks here and there. And, uh, and, and that's an example of why harm reduction is, um, you know, applicable and useful. Right now, at this very minute, somebody listening to this program is struggling with drugs and or alcohol. So my question to you is, if they take nothing else away from our time today, what would you want them to go away knowing? I would. So most people, they don't see the path that will take them to their ideal life. They don't believe that their future is there because they're stuck in their current moment. I would encourage them to realize that you look at the examples of people that have recovered. There is a path. You might not see the whole path towards your vision of your future, ideal future. But if you can take the first step, you know, you'll see the next step at some point, start taking steps, take the very first step, you know, making a phone call to, to, uh, a counselor or an addiction coach or, uh, you know, some sort of organization that deals with treatment and recovery is a huge step. It's a big first step. And from that, you'll find more steps. And from that, you'll begin to see that the future can open up for you. And so, you know, if you're doubting yourself right now and, and you don't see that there is a future that you can reach an enjoyable life that you can live, um, you know, I'd encourage you to step back and, and really believe it. Believe in your potential. Believe in yourself and believe that there are people out there who will help you fulfill that potential. I think the biggest thing is getting help. I, there is a huge reluctance for good reason to divulge that kind of information that you have an addiction, uh, you know, to drugs or alcohol. Like you said, your job is on the line, your family, then child protective services and stuff like that. Um, but at some point, you have to reach out. Um, you know, if you are, if anyone in the Grand Forks area is in need of addiction services, you can reach me at kdats, D-A-T-Z, at wefaceittogether.org. Start addiction management coaching. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a one-stop shop for everybody. I can't fix everybody's problems or anything like that, but I can refer you to different services in the community. You know, I have a big list of resources and um, if you want to reach out sort of confidentially, reach out. With the groundwork laid, I set out to find people in my own life that struggle with substance abuse. It turns out I didn't have to look too far. Right down the hallway from my desk is the office of Jared Thomas. He's the operations director for Leighton Broadcasting in Grand Forks, and these days, he lives a sober lifestyle. There's nothing more important to JT than his family and his sobriety, but that wasn't always the case. My very first experience with alcohol, I think I was 16 years old, and I was in Grand, East Grand Forks, Minnesota, 
And we had a buddy in high school whose parents uh, weren't around on Friday and Saturday nights. And he lived in an apartment. And I got invited to this apartment not knowing what, not knowing necessarily what I was getting into. I was told a party, but even, you know, I was 16, I suppose, in 1989, 1990. That meant something much different, or at least I thought I did. I walked in and there was teenagers as far as the eye could see. I remember a plume of what I think was marijuana smoke coming from a different room. I remember everybody sitting around, <laughs> girls sitting on dudes' laps, sitting around just drinking, kind of like what you would think of a garage party. And um, was offered a beer, had a beer, didn't really think much of it. Remember being petrified. I remember having two or three or four beers. And even in high school, I was a big kid, so four beers on top of my nerves, on top of, on top of. I don't remember catching a buzz or anything like that. And um, somebody yelled cops, and that, <laughs> that broke up the party. Uh, so I remember running for my life, absolutely, unequivocally, without question, petrified that I was going to get caught and my parents were going to find me. That was it until I was 19. When I was 19, I was going to junior college in Thief River Falls, Minnesota. Came home one weekend, and my buddies... I was the third youngest kid in my class, so they were always about a year older than me. And they were, so I suppose they were 20 at this point. And we were at Stells Park in East Grand Forks, and we started drinking. And that was the first time that I can recall uh, getting hammered and liking it a lot. So that's where it started. I felt like I was always in control. So, of course, I got drunk, but I, I understood the path to getting drunk. I understood what it felt like to get drunk. I understand what it took to get drunk. And so I felt like I could control or manipulate that to some degree. Now, most addicts will tell you that that's the case. Most therapists or people that are experts in recovery will tell you, well, that's of course not the case. But that's how I felt. I always thought that if I got anything stronger than booze, marijuana, I tried one time in ninth grade. Nothing happened. Probably a godsend. Nothing happened at all. There was no, there was no anything. It just was like, okay. I, did I do it wrong? Did I not have the right stuff? I, hell, I don't know. But I never went back to it. It's the one and only time I ever tried it. The cocaines and the the you know the rock cocaines that were big in the eighties and anything stronger, the meth and all that. Meth wasn't a thing when I was doing this, and so I didn't. It never played into it i was never offered anything stronger um i've always been a big guy too so when i say no it typically means no and nobody ever really sort of tried to force stuff on me but booze i always felt like yeah we're gonna have a good time we're gonna party and i'm gonna get hammered but i'm gonna know what this is i'm gonna drink i'm gonna get drunk i'm gonna wake up tomorrow's gonna be thrown away while i recover then the next day, I'm going to get back to my life. When I was 16, uh, I was playing high school sports. And the penalties, they're more severe now than they were then. But I had an uncle that was on the school board. I had a father and a mother who loved me, who I was desperate to not disappoint. So I think that those were very – I had a grandfather that uh, – was just an just an impeccable man, at least in my view. I'm sure he had his flaws, but you know he was my grandfather, who I never ever ever wanted to disappoint. 
And so those things kind of held me in line. When I got to be 19 or 20 years old, I was still playing sports. I was playing college football, kind of, at Northern Community Technical College. I was kind of winding that part of my life down. Uh, I had an opportunity to go to Bemidji State and play. Didn't. Just didn't work out. There's a chick involved. It's a long story. But I didn't want to play anymore. It was getting to be too much of a job. It was getting to be... I was kind of looking forward to what was next. And so there seemed to be like this parting of kind of the sea of responsibility and becoming my own dude. And I was, like I said, I was 19, working on 20. Parents had kind of loosened the grip a little bit, hadn't really, I don't want to give you the impression. I never had a curfew. So it wasn't like they were lording over me even at this point. I just kind of the, the idea that I had to work hard to impress them all the time was kind of fading away. And so for me, my buddies were doing it. I mean, that sounds so cliche, but my buddies were doing it. I related it socially. People sometimes, for me, can be difficult. And and I don't necessarily, I don't want to say I don't like people because I do. Uh, and that, that too is cliche. I think people, if, if most people are honest with themselves, dealing with people day to day is kind of a necessity of being on planet Earth. Is it something that you seek out to do when you leave your house in the morning? Are you looking to deal with 25 people? Are you, and certainly 25 people that you're in various stages of like with? Probably not. You open your phone in the morning, there's your social media, you, you, and you know, you're looking at Jimmy the knucklehead who's left 12 things there that you scroll by. And, and so socially, it kind of took the edge off of all of that, right? So I could, I could, t- I could tolerate much more than what I would normally tolerate. I've always been an opinionated guy. I'm fairly stubborn, and I'm a guy that just, in social situations, I'm not, my mindset isn't always right. Booze, for me, got me to the right mindset. I thought I was funnier, and everybody does maybe. I thought that I was easy, easier going. I thought that um, I could tolerate BS a lot better. And it became something that I had to have in social situations, not something that I could, I I wanted, I always wanted more than two. That was the other thing. You know, I never, if after the third beer that, what are we doing? I'm not going to have just three. Let's, uh, let's drink them all. And I tried. Were you ever concerned about more severe consequences of drinking? For example, maybe getting a DUI. Was that something that you ever worried about and did it play a role in your decision making? I think for me too, that booze was just generally in the circles that I ran was just wildly accepted. And I'm I'm from here. I'm from Grand Forks, East Grand Forks. The people that I grew up with were the people that I hung with or the people that all we ever did was, was, was drink booze. We understood the penalties. We largely thought, of course, that if you make that mistake, just don't make it twice. Hopefully, pray to God, you don't hurt anybody and you don't hurt yourself and that you can recover from it. The penalties never, it's, it's interesting about booze too. It never really played into it. You know, they always tell you the penalty for that's 10 grand or whatever it is after you pay insurance and lawyers and all the rest of it. But it never was much of a deterrent. As I got older, I sought out drivers <laughs> that were sober when I was 21 and 10 feet tall and bulletproof like the rest of us. It never really dawned on me. But I know, I mean, I read a statistic once that said, you drive 600 times drunk before you get caught. I was well into two or three times that. Never did get a DUI. Could have had one 16, 1800 times 
and never once, never even got pulled over. What role, if any, does culture play into alcohol? Well, I think the big, the biggest part for me for booze was that it was or is very much so in this area of the world, as you all know, it's very culturally accepted, and so that played a that that played and and still to some degree plays a role. What's interesting is that you almost develop into a character inside of that culture, right? So there's a there's this feeling that if if JT shows up and if he drinks, and let's just say because I was really good at it, no. I mean, I was really good at it. Let's just say I was on a, it was on a normal night, and I'm, I wish I was kidding, but I'm not. I could drink a case to 36 beers in a setting, and it wasn't a thing. It was no big deal. But if I'm over here drinking 24 to 36 beers, which means I'm drinking them pretty fast, then that takes the spotlight off of you and shines it on to me. So now whatever I'm dealing with over here, the 5, 8, 10, 12 beers that I'm drinking every single night – Nobody's looking at this circus animal. They're watching this circus show over here called JT. And then we can talk about, my God, that guy can drink. and Holy cow. But you become somewhat of a, of a party favor. It's like invite that guy because, oh, my God, you want to watch him. <laughs> oh boy, can he drink. And, and so culturally then, I get invited to things and I have opportunities based on the fact that, and this certainly happened to me, that look at this guy drink. I mean, this is something we don't see every day. This is something that we don't get to see. So he's going to show up and he's going to put on a damn show. And I did for a lot of years. So I think culturally we accept it because it's legal. We accept it because we're in rural North Dakota. Every kid to include my almost 17 year old daughter will tell you, there's nothing to do here. I don't understand. The winters are long. We need things we think to release the stress. And so we drink. And we drink hard, and we don't apologize for it. We go to social events. We go to UND hockey games, right? There'll be, I don't know how many dates there are this year. Let's just see. There's 18 dates. There's 18 Friday and Saturdays this year where 12,000 people will go to the same place. Not all of them will drink, but 90-plus percent of them will. And that has become more of a social occasion than it has about the hockey and imagine if we took the booze out of the Ralph Ingolstead Arena. Imagine what that would look like. Would they get 6,000 fans? Many people go, oh, yeah, hell yeah, they were. I mean, that's, that's BS. They were. Okay. That's this year. But then you can't drink anymore. So now what? Would you still go to the games? Well, if they're winning, you might. But if they're losing, you're not going to because you can't drink. And it becomes less of a social occasion. It becomes less of a thing to do. And so booze unites us to some degree, or at least, in my opinion, that's the feeling around here, that you drink, I drink, let's get together and have a drink. And then one quickly turns into six, and six to 12, and 12 to 18. It was interesting for me, when I would go to other places, and I would hang out with other people, and they would say, hey, let's go to a bar for a drink. I remember one time I went to Atlanta for some work thing, and I met a guy from a different market. He was from, I think, New Mexico, and he wanted to go have a drink. So we're we're at conferences all day, and they said, hey, let's go have a drink. So we go to a bar to have a drink, and what he meant was have a drink. (laughs) I thought he meant, hey, man, it's time to get after it. No, no. He meant let's go and have a drink. 
and it, it it's weird, but in that moment, it dawned on me, like, there's a whole, like, rest of the United States of America that just handles this just fine. 80-plus percent of the people, even in North Dakota, handle their booze just fine. And we hyper-focus on the 20-ish percent that can't. And it's that, that percentage, there's less than that that have an addiction, have an issue to it. But there's probably about 20-ish percent of the population that that when they go out to drink, they can't just have a couple of beers and go home. 80% or 80-plus percent of you can stop on your way home tonight, have a beer, have two beers, shake a coworker's hand, go home, have dinner with your family, play with your kids, mow the yard, and go about your life, and those two beers meant nothing. But I didn't fall into that percentage. Not even close. I have learned just in the short time I have been involved in radio how much the radio industry focuses on alcohol and alcohol consumption and how celebrated that is. Did that play a role for you? It became readily accessible. I could tell you times that in this business where uh, we legitimately got paid in booths, they would give you, you'd show up at the bar to do a, a remote, which is just a broadcast from the bar, for those that don't know. And we'd get a pittance of cash, you know, 10, 15 bucks an hour, but then free drinks. So I can distinctly remember working at a bar in downtown Grand Forks where we would show up and our table would be full of pitchers of beer. Would just be that that would be it. I mean, it it's really easy to talk to girls when you've got all the drinks. And so that's that's how it started. The money I took my first radio job overnight. It paid six hundred dollars a month in nineteen ninety-three. And seemed like all the money in the world. And I I ate essentially for free. Because of radio, I drank absolutely for free because of radio. If the station wasn't involved, if it wasn't a station promotion, somebody was buying you a drink. Because in 1993, you were still the closest thing to Hollywood that there was in Grand Forks, North Dakota. That's all changed, of course, but that was then. What was the turning point for you? At what point did you wake up and decide, this isn't how I want to live my life anymore. I want something different. What happened? Tell me that story. Looking back on it, I don't, and, and I think here's kind of the, the devil part of alcohol is you don't really see it as you're going through it. But my story was I spent all of my 20s and all of my 30s drunk. I mean, that's, I, I can't be more honest than that. We get to my wife's 40th birthday party and she's about six months older than I am. And we have a babysitter for Maggie and we're going out. So we go out and I literally, and I kid you not, get hammered in about 15 minutes. Now, I come to find out the way that that works in the body is, and this is absolutely true, I had drank the two or three days prior. And at the level that I was drinking, my liver was in a constant state of saturation. So you come to find out that when you're in that state, that if you're just even just a little bit of alcohol day four, you're drunk. Because I didn't understand that then, but I understand it now. If I wasn't drinking beer, I would like to drink rum. Sometimes I would drink Bacardi. And so that particular night, I started by drinking a couple of big glasses of Bacardi. And I was drinking, and I, like I said, I got drunk. And my wife, which was our kind of the way we did things, when she saw me do that, she would throttle down. She would stop drinking because she was the adult. She realized somebody had to drive. We had a child. 
We got bills. We got, you know, got a life. So I did my thing. Got hammered. Finished the night by getting coup rushed. Stayed out till two, three, four in the morning. She maybe had one more beer the whole night. Now, remember, and I like to remember people often, that it was her birthday party. My wife, still to this day, not a big drinker. Two, three, four beers in a night over six, seven hours. Nothing to get too excited about. Just kind of a very passive. One of those adults that I spoke of earlier. We got uh, we got home, went to bed uneventful, not a big fight, no big explosion, no you asshole, none of that kind of stuff, right? Um, woke up the next day, was the typical lethargical, lethargic rather, start to everything. I'm kind of getting my wits about me. She, of course, gets up before me, blah, blah, blah. I walk out to the kitchen and she's sitting there. And I go ahead and make some very unhealthy type breakfast for myself because, you know, that grease, Noah, you got to have yourself some grease. So I'm I'm going through that whole thing. I eat breakfast. Maggie had something to do. So somebody came to pick up Maggie. So it was just my wife and I. And uh, we're sitting there and she looks at me and she says, you know, I love you more than anything. But she said, I will not go through that again so she said here's your choices you can either take the steps to fix your addiction which was the first time in our relationship that she had used that word in relation to my drinking or she said i will be taking maggie and i will be leaving the choice is yours with that she handed me a book and said i want you to read this If you love me at all, you'll read it. And, uh, you know, let me know what your decision is. And I was was like, what what just happened? I mean, she had never, she'd never played that card. I got to be clear, our relationship was never, it's always been cordial. It's always been full of love. And there's never been, we don't fight. We bicker a little bit as married couples do, but we don't, there's no knockout drag outs. There's no, I'm throwing stuff. And she's, it's none of that. There's, we don't raise our voices to each other. So when she said that to me, it was just like some like a ton of bricks. So I took the book, went in the bedroom, read all 265 pages. I came out into the kitchen where my wife was, and I said, I'll take care of it. And she said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, here's, here's what I'm going to do. 30 days, I'm going to just try to fix it on my own. If at the end of those 30 days, I slip, I screw up, I whatever, I will go to treatment and I will be there until this is done. And I said, what I need from you right this second is 30 days. I just need you to bear with me for 30 days. And I, and I, here's the other thing I did. I said, it's your call. If at any time this is not working, if any time you don't, you're uncomfortable, I'll just go right to treatment. So she said, okay, I, I'll live with that. And I never looked back. That was uh, over five years ago. So for me, I was very lucky in the sense that, well, to this point anyway, I've been able to fix it, so to speak. I, don't, I, I hesitate with fix it because it, other addicts who might listen to this think that it's a daily struggle. It's a day-to-day thing. So don't think I've, I've fixed anything other than I've come up with some ways to deal with it. The other thing I did was I, I downloaded Coach to, five, or Coach to 5K to my phone. At the time, I weighed 407 pounds. I told my wife too that I was going to get healthy. I also downloaded my fitness pal. I've logged my food 
2012 consecutive days in a row um, as a way to try to get into a better mental state, a better physical state so that I could be a better husband and a better father and, you know, a better friend and all those things. And, you know, going back into that bedroom, <laughs> what I've never told anybody before is, and Noah, you probably know me well enough to know that I'm not a huge crier. I'm not a guy that uh, sits around much and thinks about my emotions and I'm not, I'm like most, probably like most guys, you know, I went in that bedroom and I read the book and there's a portion of the book that talks about how guys, because we don't deal with our feelings, alcohol is the vice we use to actually deal with our feelings. And I thought, man, (laughs) what am I going to do if I don't have this thing to deal with my feelings? And so I, I shared that later with my wife and she said, you know, she said, you, you give the world the impression that you're an ass. And she said, those that know you know different. But she said, you're very comfortable with the world thinking that you're an ass. And she said, that won't change because that's, that's who you are. Now, she said, you don't let a lot of people get to know you either. But she said, the ones that you do get that do get to know you know you're not an ass you're not an ass at all but that facade will will get you through and for some weird reason i found some comfort in that i went to work ran my first 5k um i suppose 90 to 120 days after uh i lost 140 pounds i have been able to um keep most of the weight off my lowest weight was 225 i clocked in this morning at 238.7 so i mean i'm in, I'm in there within the 15 ish pounds of leeway um so i mean it it's been it's been good but but the downstroke for me was just my wife and the thought of, of frankly not only losing your wife but but also losing your kid uh and my wife uh, i believed her man i mean she wasn't she wasn't kidding. It'd been it'd been a long twenty years for her. Uh, out till eleven o'clock at night, not knowing where your husband is. It's a lot. It's all the things you think. She would make a meal. I wouldn't show up for it. You know, I mean, it was all the kind of crap that you hear. But in the end, she just finally said, "You can do whatever you want, but I, I ain't doing it." Home slice. And so here I am, still sober after I was five years in March. So whatever that is. Can alcohol be used responsibly to facilitate human connection, or is there always going to be the potential for abuse? I mean, if you and I were forced, if we were born today into a world where there was no booze, and at the end of the day, all we had was just, let's just say, no way to get high, right? There was no drugs. There was no nothing. We just we just had to connect. There's many people, the people listening would be like, holy a lot of people would think that they can't deal with their life, right? I mean, how how am I supposed to live a Friday night at 5 o'clock? I can't stop at my favorite watering hole, have a 7, 8, 9, 10 beers, go home to the garage, pop open the beer fridge, turn on my hockey game, and sit there. Get absolutely plowed because I've had a, using my air quotes, tough week. You can't do it. They won't do it. There's a period of time drinking alcohol where connection is important. And it's fine if you establish that connection, you finish your beer and we're still connecting. But I think, unlike the study, 
what most humans do anyway, at least has been my observation, is they keep drinking. And then there becomes a point of diminishing returns. Then that connection can sometimes, but not always, but sometimes can turn into us arguing about whether Donald Trump's the greatest president in the world or, or of all time or whether he's going to be the worst of all time. And that's normally something you and I wouldn't talk about, which isn't true. You and I might talk about that, but just the general you and I wouldn't talk about that. But because we're drinking, my point is, is that alcohol doesn't let go. It just doesn't let go of you. It it It's constantly there. It constantly has a presence. In fact, it has a presence even when you're not drinking. I mean, even today, five and a half years-ish sober. It still has a role in my life. It still has a role in how I think about things. It has a role in how I do my job. It has a role in how I interact socially. I have, I have so little tolerance for, I'll just give you a quick example. I was in a bar for a social situation for, well, it was supposed to be a meeting, but so I go to this, and the guy that he's drinking, I'm not, obviously, hopefully by now, in the first 17 minutes told me the same story three times. I mean, I'm sure I did that when I was drinking, but my tolerance for that now as a sober guy, 46 years old, was, F that, man. I'm out of here. But I think that that's, that's the difference is that it connects you. It connects you for a period of time. It can be the reason why two people get in a room. I don't. I bet you ninety percent of the people that I used to talk to when I was drinking, I don't talk to anymore. The only thing that brought us together was booze. Why do you believe alcohol is so prevalent in the broadcast industry? I think announcers they they drink booze first because they think that they always the mic always has to be on. So if they're out in a social setting and alcohol is offered, they drink it because it helps them tear down some of those introvert type walls that it allows them to kind of be show business without being in the studio, without being in front of the microphone, without having their things at their fingertips. And it allows them to kind of tolerate the social situation. I think the second thing that booze does in this business is it kind of helps people to connect and and I hesitate to say it that way because that's generally thought of as a positive thing. Alcohol can be a positive thing, I suppose, in that regard. But I think that it, it just helps introverts in particular just kind of melt away. Okay, I'm in a situation where I wasn't normally going to be comfortable. I've had three, four beers now. All right, buddy, what do you want to talk about? Well, that's what you did last week. With, okay. What should somebody who is maybe looking at getting into recovery or starting down the road to recovery, what should they know ahead of time? What should they be prepared for? You got to commit to going through the, (laughs) it's not easy. There's going to be times, you know, it's, it was interesting because just the other day, um, I was driving down to Merce and I haven't had a craving for booze in forever. Warm day. And uh, I was just driving down Demers, and I looked over, and there's a bar that's got a sign in the in the window that says Kokanee. 
Now, my connection to Kokanee has to do with fishing trips I used to take with my buddies. I haven't had a Kokanee in, I mean, I haven't drank in five years. It was probably five years before that, before I had, had a Kokanee. And I saw the sign and I thought, man, what a Kokanee tastes good right now. Now, again, it's been 10, 12-ish years since I've had a Kokanee. I mean, I, I couldn't even, I don't think I remember what it tastes like. But I got almost home. And I'm still thinking about this freaking kokanee. I get my driveway and I'm like, some bitch. Once somebody has demonstrated a propensity for abuse of alcohol, do you believe that that person can ever walk their alcoholism back into responsible use? Or once they've crossed that line, there is no returning? I think that if I went out this afternoon, I bet I could have two beers and walk away. I think I could probably do that 30, 60 days. Then I think, let's just say we'll use this time of year. We're in September. So let's say we're just getting into the holidays. It's Thanksgiving. I'm around family. I'm in a safe spot. I have a couple of beers with Thanksgiving dinner. And, hey, Jared, you want an after-dinner drink? Yeah, sure. What the hell? I think by Christmas, I'd be back into the full throes of it. I don't think that in my personality, and I see it a lot of things, I see it in soda. Soda I drink as, like, like they're never going to make the crap again. I drink it like it's, and I can't drink it. It affects my gut. It affects my digestion. It affects all kinds of things. It doesn't make me feel good, but damn, do I love it. I love to drink it. I love everything about it, but I've had to give it up again because it, it just affects me. It's the same thing with booze. I, like I said, I think for a, a period of time, yeah, I'd be fine. You know, like um, our sales team is going to some training here in the next couple of days. And when I've gone to training in the past, that what's the safer environment then? You're in a hotel. You're staying in a hotel. There's a bar in the hotel. Okay, so you take the driving out of it. The company generally is, is paying for it. Oh, boy. I mean, the, the stars align. Okay. All the food, that's a, everything paid for. It's an alcoholic's dream. All I have to do is sit down and start drinking. If I started doing that again, I'd be right back into the throes of it. So it, it's, I think for most addicts, well, I think for all addicts that it's an all or nothing proposition. I, I don't think you can wind it back. I don't think you can go back to moderation. I think the, that day was when I was 19. But I also think... I'm in that four-ish percent of people. The other thing about soda real quick is that for me, it sets off sensors in my there's in the frontal lobes of my brain that make me want sugar and sweets. So that's also bad for my diet. So when I drink soda, I want to eat more. Also makes me cr- crave carbohydrates, which of course, unused carbohydrates turn to fat. And so then I've got that additional thing. So it's for addicts. It's very tricky. Um, most things that you want, especially in the case of alcoholism and oral fixation, is you want lots of it. I drink flavored water, lots of it. I drink tea, lots of it. So there's another piece of this that still has to be dealt with, and that's the the oral fixation part of it and retraining your brain as to how much to drink and when to drink because you forget drink when you're thirsty. 
or just drink to stay hydrated or drink before a workout. I'm going to go to Orange Theory Fitness tonight at 645. I should be sipping on water all day just to make sure that I'm hydrated for that workout. But I'll drink massive amounts of alcohol all day, which means massive amounts of trips to the bathroom, which means. So it's it's very tricky for, for, for addicts. But no, to answer your question directly, for a period of time, yeah, it'd be okay. But by Christmas, I would be living in your basement. You talked about developing coping mechanisms to substitute alcohol. Can you define what some of those coping mechanisms are and how people can use them if they're going through this as well? I will run to just to try to blow off some steam. Uh, Orange Theory Fitness has been a godsend in my life. Um, it's one hour, or 90 minutes, or 45 minutes, depending on the workout, of just absolute, just letting the stress melt away. Um, so there's been that, uh, I've started lifting weights again to some degree. Um, that's been, that's been really good. Uh, spending more time with my wife and kid and spending time where I'm actually present and I'm actually there and I'm actually engaged in what the hell's going on around me has been, has been awesome. But yeah, it's, it, that's the hard part, man. It really is because it's like, okay, what do I do now? Well, what if I don't like to run? What if I don't like to lift weights? What if OTF isn't for me? What? If, well, you got to find something because we have stressors. We have triggers. There's things that happen every day where the answer would be four o'clock, lock my office door. Let's go drink and deal with what I think is stress. And it's not. Where do you see your role, if appropriate at all, to approach employees and say, hey, you're headed down a dangerous path. I've been there. You don't want to wind up there. Yeah. You know, I, I think I heard, I might have heard Brad say this on his show where he said that, um, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he said something along the lines of he thought that reaching rock bottom was kind of a cliche thing. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that there's a time and I think timing is everything with this, when people will listen to what you have to say. And sometimes being in management creates an audience for me that I wouldn't normally get with an employee because I'm your boss or I'm, you know, whatever. I hate that word. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in. So I, I can call you into my office and there could be some forced listening there. But then I think you have to be careful with that too, because it's really not my place. But what I always, what I found when it's happened is they either become aware of what I've been through or they've had somebody say, you know, you should go talk to JT about that or whatever. Um, and generally they end up in my office to talk about that. Me approaching them doesn't typically happen, but I'll tell you, it happened one time and it happened in an offshoot kind of way because there's a telltale sign of everybody always wonders, when am I an alcoholic, right? Like there's some arbitrary definition out there that's, that says, when are you a drunk? And there really isn't. It's a little bit different for everybody. But one of the things they say is that if you are thinking about, so say you're at work and you're thinking about, man, I'll have a beer tonight. And you start to think about, God dang it, how many beers do I have in my fridge? And there's some anxiety associated because you can't for the life of you remember how many beers do I have in my fridge. 
And there's people who get turned around the axle all day because they can't for the life of them remember. How many beers do I have in my fridge? You're probably an alcoholic. So we're, I can't, I think we're in the lobby out here at work and coworker is, it's Friday and I believe it's hockey season. So that's, I mean, we're drinking. If we're not doing nothing, we're drinking. And so we're sitting out there and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I think I'm going to the game tonight and I'm going to go home and I'll have a few beers. And then he starts. I wonder how many, wonder how many beers I And he completely withdraws from the conversation. He's no longer talking about what the rest of the group is talking about. He's no longer participating in any way. In fact, he, he almost isolates himself. And he's lost in thought because he can't remember how many beers he had in his freeze, in his fridge. So the conversation ends and it breaks up as it often does in the workplace and people are going their separate ways. And I said, hey, man, just step in my office for a second. And I said, did you ever figure out how many beers you have in your fridge? Oh, man. No. I said, you might want to evaluate where you're at. And he kind of chuckled and I said, no, seriously. I said, you know, you, you, when, it, when it affects you that way, you need to take inventory of, of where you're at and whether or not you're controlling it or it's controlling you. And it seems right now that it's controlling you. And I said, I'm not here to preach and I'm not here to tell you one way or the other. You're, maybe you're perfectly comfortable with where you're at with all of this. But my education on the topic tells me that that's a telltale sign that, you, that the tail is now officially wagging the dog. And that's a problem. Somebody is listening to this program right now, and they're saying to themselves, that's me. Earlier today, I was just thinking about how many beers I have in my fridge. What's the first step for them? What's the first thing that they need to do to get onto the road of recovery? You know, the first step is going to sound strange and weird, and I acknowledge that up front, is find a mirror. Find some alone time in front of a mirror. And here's the great thing about that. You don't get to lie to that person in the mirror and you have to be honest with yourself and you have to decide to make changes. And I would strongly suggest that the very first thing that you do, if you think that you have an, even if you just think you have an alcohol problem is go to a meeting. It's cliche, but (laughs) it works. What I did, I'm told and I'm not trying self-praise is no praise at all. So don't, please don't take it that way. What I did is extraordinary from what I understand, just being able to set the bottle down and walk away. Now I had some pretty heavy influence there, but is, is, is not the way that this goes normally. Um, you need to find some support. You need to, to find people that are going to help you in this. It's even, even for me, it's impossible at least my belief is it's impossible to do alone. If it's not impossible, it's near impossible to do. And so I would tell anybody that is struggling with it that you can always call me on the office phone. I mean, this has happened when I've talked about this on the radio. I've had people, I've got back to my office phone and there's been three, four, five people there that want to talk about where they're at with alcohol. 
And that's fine. I'm always available to do that. If you want to talk about it, I'll absolutely, we can talk about it. We can find the help that you need together. We can, I'll be there for you. That's often the hardest part is just knowing that there's people out there that give a crap about you that are willing to take the time to go through the process with you because not everybody has that. But the very first step, the very first step, you might have to cry. You might spit on yourself. You might flick yourself off. You might tear your shirt off. I mean, these are all things I've heard of happen. You might get angry. You might yell. You might scream. All this stuff. And it's okay. But the very first thing that you need to do, find a mirror, spend some time, have the conversation with yourself first. Again, sounds weird. Sounds nuts. Sounds like you're crazy. But I'm telling you, it'll be the best time that you ever spent. What advice do you have, if any, for the family member or loved friend of an alcoholic? Somebody is living with this person in their house or is in a relationship with them. What advice do you have for them to be supportive but not enabling, giving them the best possible chance for the alcoholic in their life to get recovery? It's always somebody else's fault, right? I think that's you, – you have to – you have to understand that. The other thing that you have to understand is that for those that are in the alcoholic's life, it's not your fault. You didn't do anything. You didn't sit on their chest and force booze down their throat. You didn't, it, it's, it's not, although they're going to make it seem like it is, it's not your fault. You didn't, you didn't do anything wrong. And I think it, it takes strong people. Because typically what happens with alcohol is it just it wrecks lives. It just wrecks it wrecks the, the alcohol the person drinking it everything around them. I mean it's it's in shambles. It's it's literally uh, burned to the ground. So it becomes very very difficult to try to want to even help that person, want to talk about that person, or even want to think about that person, much less lend a hand and try to help them. But I think the psychology of it is, listen, it's not my fault if I'm the alcoholic. It's everybody else's fault. If I, you know, I could have easily went this path. If I wasn't in radio, if it wasn't readily available, if for the first five years of my career, I wasn't paid in pitchers of beer, right? It's radio's fault that I'm a drunk, right? If, if my mother-in-law uh, and her boyfriend didn't have parties every Friday at five o'clock where I could stop by and have as many beers as I wanted, it's their fault, Right? If I didn't walk into any bar in town and if I wasn't JT and beer was free, it's everybody else's fault. No, it's not. It's my fault. I'm the guy. I'm the one that did it. So I think that's the first thing that if you're, if you're thinking about this is that you have to understand. First, you have to take it's It's your fault. It, you did it. Take ownership of it. Because these people can't fix it for you. They can help you. They can steer you in the right direction. Sometimes they can offer you some assistance in terms of money or support or food or whatever. But you got to do the work. That's why that time in the mirror is so important. You got to commit to doing it. But it's hard for the people that are around to understand that. The alcoholic is going to lash out. The alcoholic is going to blame you. The alcoholic is going to use every reason under the sun. But you just always have to remember, it's not your fault. There's support for you too. There's support for people that have to deal with us assholes. I mean, really, there is. And it's 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 difficult because um, why would you do it, right? Why would you do it? 
why would you why would you put up with it why would you why would you try to why would you try to change them why would you try why would you give a crap why and you know the answers for people are always different but most of the time it comes down to one thing they people care about people and they generally in the case that we're describing they love the person that's involved and you just have to be able to ignore it, move on, and know that when they get through this time, that it's going to be it's going to be better. But it's not easy. It's not easy at all. What I took away from JT's story was a support system for a recovering addict is absolutely critical. The love of his wife, though firm, was enough to push him to get the help he needed. I started to wonder if everybody had a solid support system and felt connected to one another. If addiction would even still be a problem in the United States. My next stop was just two studios down. I sat down with Brad Schmidt, host of The Schmidt Show, right here at Leighton Broadcasting. Brad's struggle didn't involve alcohol. Instead, Brad turned to drugs to self-medicate after being involved in a horrific accident. Alcohol was never really a big deal for me, so I didn't do a lot of drinking. It was later on, actually, when I when I got older, actually, after I graduated high school, is when I really kind of got into um, irresponsible use. And I mean, I guess even at, at any age when you're under 21 is irresponsible use of alcohol. But I would say I was probably a little bit older when I really started using with the intention of, you know, getting drunk and, and doing dumb stuff. I don't know. I would probably only three or four times in, in high school that I actually drank and, and got drunk. Um, and even then it wasn't like falling down, stumbling around drunk. Cause that was just never, just never really part of what I wanted to do. It was later on after I got older that I kind of started to self-medicate. When I did get into it and I did start abusing, you know, whatever substance I was abusing, um, it was actually my stepdad's example that I think kind of helped drag me out of it because I saw, I saw the danger. I saw it coming. Like I knew, uh, I growing up, I remember going to family AA picnics and, and things like that. And so I kind of like, I saw him like, uh, you think you're getting out of control here. Um, and you should probably do something about it. So it was actually the example of my, my stepdad that probably dragged me out of the addiction, you know, more than anything. And in fact, my mom in my lifetime, I don't know that I ever actually saw my mom drink. I know she says she did a couple of times, you know, in trying to, you know, it was was kind of with my biological dad before they got divorced. It was kind of a, well, you know, I can't beat him. I can't get him to quit. So maybe I'll join him kind of thing. Um, but beyond that, I don't know that I've actually you've ever even seen my mom drink at all. So I was involved in an accident in 1995. I was 19 years old. I was driving semi and uh, an accident that I caused, it was my fault. Um, a 16 year old kid was killed. And so there became, there came a moment in my life following that experience. I was stone sober. I wasn't using at the time. I wasn't, you know, no THC in my blood. I had to actually take a drug test as part of a DOT thing. So there wasn't any of that. But following that, knowing, going through the, the psychological and emotional issues that came along with the fact of knowing that my actions cost someone else their life, that's not easy for anybody to deal with. And it's especially not easy for a 19 year old kid to deal with. And so it was the alienation from my family. It was the embarrassment. It was the, and it wasn't that my family alienated me. It's that I, you know, because of the embarrassment, because of all of the emotional garbage that came along with that, I separated myself from my family. And so the drugs were a way to kind of self-medicate, you know, and this is looking back 2020 hindsight's 2020, like you said earlier, this is me looking back and going, I was self-medicating. 
communicating. I was using the the drugs as a way to forget about this event, this traumatic event in my life. And I don't know that I would call it post-traumatic stress. I don't think it was that. I think it was just, it was a way for me to, to deal to, like I said, to self-medicate and get away from what had gone on at that moment in my life. And so I think a lot of it, I think I would actually, if I had to, if I had to put a number on it, I would say at least 75, 80% of the people that do use drugs and especially people that use drugs or alcohol irresponsibly, it's a, it's a self-medication thing. We have so much mental health issues in this country and not even like full on mental illness, but we just don't deal well with life anymore. We're so separated in society. We're so disconnected. I I can't tell people enough. The friendship that you and I have, the friendship that my buddy Dean and I have, the relationship that I have with my wife, how important those are in me being able to stay clean and stay sober and just deal with life in general. Having a a friend like you or like my buddy Dean where I can just sit down and go, hey, this thing is going on in my life and it kind of sucks. It's frustrating. It's irritating. And you or or whatever other friends going, yeah, I know. I, I'm I'm there with you. I've I've had that same frustration. And we're all on the same page, and we're all moving in the right same direction. The importance in that, and I think there's a lot of people that just don't have that, or they sit down with a friend and say, man, this deal with my wife. It's just I've been we've been fighting a lot lately, and blah blah blah. And the buddy, instead of saying, man, I know I'm with you. I've had some of those same fights. This is how I dealt with it. We sit down and go, here, have a beer. Here, have another one. Just because you have an addictive personality doesn't mean you have to be an addict, you know? And so I think there's ways to control it. Like I said, alcohol was never really an issue for me. There's still times where I'll I'll have a glass of wine here and there, and I can have a glass of wine or I can drink one beer, and that's it, and be done with it, because alcohol was just never really all that attractive to me. I, I would drink one beer and then smoke a whole bag of weed. You know, I mean, I would drink one beer and, and snort a, you know, go through, burn through a, an entire gram of meth or coke or whatever. When I went to college, one of the things that we had to do was take a personality test and then sit down with our, our advisor and talk about what was in the personality test. And my advisor, you know, he's going through, and he says, well, it looks like this. And, you know, it looks like you're you know, for the most part, a pretty stable person and, you know, pretty normal. Um, he said, they said, we, you know, we do have one kind of a concern, you know, it seems like your, your personality, you know, is showing that you have tendencies toward addictive behaviors. And I went, <laughs> I didn't need to take a test to tell you that. I mean, I could have, I could, I could have told you that before we bothered with all these, whatever, 600 and some odd questions I had to answer. I knew that. There is maybe a genetic predisposition towards addictive behavior, but the reality is, and I've said this a million times, it's actually one of the things that bothers me about the discussion of addiction is that in the end, we've got a choice, right? Like You can never get addicted to alcohol if you never take the first drink. You can never get addicted to drugs if you never you know, snort that first line or, or smoke that first joint. So I, I think there's a part of the discussion that gets left out when we don't talk about the importance of personal responsibility in, in all this. And so maybe there was some sort of, I was hardwired towards addictive behaviors. Despite your addictive behavior, alcohol just wasn't attractive to you. Was pot attractive to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cause I could, cause I could smoke a joint and get just absolutely baked out of my mind and woke up the next day and felt like a million dollars. No, no hangover, no, you know, none of the, the, the barfing and throwing up from the, from the alcohol poisoning or, or any of that. So the attraction to me was that I got a, a much more intense high much quicker 
without a lot of the negative after effects of alcohol. The first time I ever smoked marijuana was on a night of drinking. A buddy and I were at a bar. I was I, I was actually underage and shouldn't even been at the bar, but I'd had a few five or six, you know, three or four beers, whatever it was, was feeling good. And and my buddy said, Hey, let's go out back and have a cigarette. And we get out back and he it was a cigarette, but it wasn't that kind of cigarette. And and that was the first time I ever smoked pot. And and it was that moment and I I can remember the night I remember the the color of shirt the guy was wearing and that moment was the moment that I began this adventure into the the illicit drug use now it wasn't until a few years later that I really got heavy into it um, and there was some personal issues that were going on at the time and some self-medication and things like that as well. But uh, marijuana absolutely is, a, in my opinion, a gateway drug. And, and I catch a lot of flack for that, but I just think it's true. I would actually like to see the federal government loosen up some of the regulation and allow some studies to be done. I mean, p- go find a thousand or five thousand pot users who use at whatever level and start studying them and get you know f- whether it's federal approval or or even federal funding to do the studies. I think it'd be uh, very valuable because we'd learn a lot. We'd be able to learn about well how much is too much to be driving on. We'd learn all kinds of ways to figure out driving under the influence laws. We find out all sorts of information. I'm not saying that that we should that nobody should ever be allowed to do any drugs ever or anything like that, right? I, I just don't think we I just don't, don't don't think we're taking the right approach. So yeah, I'd be okay with with even even as a conservative as I am, I'd be okay with the federal government figuring out a way to to study this so we can actually get some real answers. And even if the federal government's not involved, just the federal government getting out of the way and letting the the private industry, let the doctors, let the research universities do the study. More information is always better, right? Tell me about the moment that all of this turned around, the moment where you said, I'm no longer going to be a drug user. I am going to turn my life around. I was sitting in a hotel in West Fargo. Believe it or not, true story, not exaggerating, it was called the Ho-Hum Inn. I don't know if it still exists, but it was a hotel. Um, This would have been in in February 1996. Uh, February 17th, 1996. And it was a $12 a night hotel room. So this is not some sort of high class. I mean, we're not even talking Holiday Inn Express. And in fact, you know, the Super 8 or the Motel 6 would have been a five star compared to this place. And 12 bucks a night in a hotel that I couldn't afford. Like I, I didn't know how I was going to pay for the next night in the hotel. I was literally on the verge of homelessness. As I'm sitting there kind of thinking this through, figuring out like what's my next move, my car was actually broken down in a town 100 plus miles away. Uh, The nearest family was my parents. My dad lived in Ellendale. I'm sitting there in the hotel kind of trying to work through what my next move is. And I kind of went, well, this is stupid. My dad, I know, cares about me. My mom, I know, cares about me. And I bet if I just call them, they'll help me figure out at least what my next move is. And so I, I called my dad. It was like 11 o'clock at night and uh, called my dad and he said, hey, uh, I'm up here in West Fargo and I think I need to come home. And he said, okay. Um, so where are you at? And I told him and he said, I'll be there in a couple hours. And I'm thinking he was going to, you know, the next day, it's 11 o'clock at night. It's a two hour plus drive. 
He said, I'll be there in a couple hours. Unbeknownst to me, there was a conversation that had been happening between my mom and him, and I'll get to that in a second. But he drove all the way to Fargo, picked me up. It was one or two in the morning, whatever, when he got there. Turned around, drove all the way back to my hometown, and it had to be three, four in the morning, whatever time it was. I don't even remember when we got home. I slept on the couch that night, woke up the next morning. My dad, he actually went to work that day, got up at seven o'clock in the morning after that, all driving all night. He said, you can stay here as long as you want, but you're... uh, you're going to pay rent and you're going to get a job. It's the only conversation him and I ever had about it. That was it. And I've been clean ever since. I didn't realize this at the time, but having conversations with my folks now, 20 years on, my mom had told my dad several times, you need to go to Fargo, pick him up and drag his dumb rear end home because he's being an idiot. And my dad said, that's never going to work. We just have to be ready when he kind of wakes up. And comes to his senses. And so that night, I again, I didn't know this. I, when I called, my dad answered the phone. All he said to my mom was, it's time. And he got dressed and got in the car and drove away. Didn't tell her anything else. She knew what was going on. She knew that it was me that was on the phone. But he didn't beat me up about it. He didn't humiliate me or that was it. He supported me and, and uh, I got a job. In the next couple of days, we, we drove up to uh, New Rockford where my car was, got it back and got it fixed so I could get back and forth to work. And it, by July of that year, my wife had moved, well, she was my fiance at the time, had moved to my hometown and we got married in August and daughter was born in October and that was it. A common thread I'm picking up is that the people who make it through recovery do so because of their support system. It sounds like you had a very good support system, but what advice would you give to somebody who doesn't have that? Their family doesn't support them. Maybe they don't have friends or anybody that could come pick them up in the middle of a town in the middle of the night. What advice would you give those people? The I guess the advice that I would give someone else who maybe doesn't have that relationship, find somebody in your life that you know to be a problem solver, that you know to be, that they're going to be supportive, that they're not going to humiliate you or, or beat you up about whatever position you're in, but they're just going to be there to listen and understand and offer wisdom. Don't call your drunk buddy. Don't call your stoned cousin. Call somebody that you know is is clean and that you know is going to be uh, supportive of you, because that's I think that's a lot of it is and I and I got away from everybody like I all of the people that I did that kind of stuff with the behavior that engaged him in I left I got away from him like hundreds of miles away from him I left everything to to get away from that crowd and join a new crowd where that kind of behavior didn't didn't take place. The first and foremost thing is is you've got to find, AA calls it the higher power, and my belief is that that higher power is God or Jesus Christ, and you've got to find that more than anything, even more than a family, even more than a friend or a mentor or something, you've got to find a faith and an understanding of there is something beyond us that we can't quite, as human beings, quantify. Do you believe that we have a cultural problem surrounding drugs and addiction? I mean, you see all the the memes on Facebook and and the various social media, you know, 
one of those days and it's you know some guy with the you know a case of beer or some single mom with a with a glass of wine the size of a garbage can and you know and we we make jokes about it we laugh about it you know and and maybe what she really needs is not marijuana not cannabis not wine not anything but maybe what she needs is a friend JT Brad and Cal all had two things in common first they all had an excellent support system in place and secondly they're well into their recovery But I wanted to see what it's like from the beginning stages, just a year into recovery and with no support system in place. For that, I sat down with Krista Mazurka, a courageous woman who was willing to battle drug addiction without a support system in place. You know, I hate to blame everything on my childhood, but unfortunately, that's kind of all where it stems from. Um, You know, both my parents are sick in their own way, so... I wasn't really receiving the attention that I wanted or that I needed from them growing up during those crucial years, you know, of like the love and acceptance and all of that. You know, my dad used to make jokes on taking me up to the reservation and dropping me off and leaving me there. You know, he would make jokes about um, running away and never coming back and leaving me alone, you know, and I'm five to nine years old when he's telling me this and I only see him on the weekends. So that's a huge thing, you know, for some, for a child to hear that. And then, you know, my mom is, I hate to, you know, take her inventory, of course, but my mom drinks excessively and um, she was never really around, never really home. Um, So I grew up witnessing all that. And from a very young age, I too remember nothing I ever did was good enough. You know, my brother was always her pride and joy. He's three years younger than me. So he got all the love and everything he did, you know, was golden child. And everything I did was just, why is this a C? It should be a B. And then I get a B, but it should be an A, you know. And even now that I'm clean and sober, um, it's still just not good enough. You know, she constantly asks me, oh, can you drink now? You know, like she just doesn't understand the seriousness. But I guess what led me to to do that is that feeling of being that I felt abandoned. I felt like I didn't even fit in with my own family, you know. And so I hung out with the kids that everyone was doing the same thing. Um, I wasn't allowed to be in sports because it interfered with my dad's weekends. Um, so sports were out the window. I wasn't really involved in anything. So where do you seek acceptance? Where do you seek the attention that you feel you're not getting at home? You know, everyone's drinking, everyone's smoking weed. So that's where I felt that I was getting what I needed from people that were just like me. I must have been, man, maybe 11 or 12. I was with my dad for the weekend and we went down to his friend's house down by the cities and they had three kids that were some older than me some younger than me and parents all went out and we raided the liquor cabinet and uh, my stepbrother and stepsister didn't drink or anything like that but they definitely knew we were and I don't really remember a whole lot just from being so young but I know in the morning I woke up with a huge hangover and I threw up the entire ride from Minneapolis back up north to Bemidji. And I'm pretty sure my dad knew. Everybody wants to be accepted, at least by somebody. Most of us would like to be accepted by everybody. And I think for most kids, that one person that accepts the real us, and I don't mean the us that goes out into the store, the us that gets put on social media. I mean 
the real us. For most kids, that's our parents. It sounds like you didn't have that. What did that feel like? Very lonely. You know, so I get, I've had it in my head that I deemed myself unlovable a long time ago, and I'm really working hard, you know, to to flip that script on myself. But I just always felt that if I couldn't, if I wasn't even enough for my own parents, you know, like, yeah, the real me, who I am or anything just wasn't good enough. If I, if my parents, if I wasn't even enough for my own parents, how would I be enough for anybody else, you know? And like I said, from a really young age, so I, years and years of feeling that and then having it almost be validated that I just wasn't um, who they wanted me to be, you know? So I think it's all based on feeling, not feeling accepted, not feeling wanted, feeling abandoned, feeling neglected. It's all, I think it all stems from at some point in time, somewhere along the way, somebody, they, you know, even hearing the wrong thing somewhere, you know, like in an example, in my family, if you are thin or considered thinner, nice body, that means that you are beautiful, okay? So, um, for, I had a stepmom that would call me fat and, you know, and for people that don't know what I look like, I'm definitely by far not fat, but, or overweight, right? Not even close, I guess, but hearing that so many times and then, you know, like my aunt would always be like, oh, is your mom still skinny? Is your mom still skinny? And then my mom would be like, oh, is your aunt still skinny? So those feelings, even though they weren't necessarily, all of them weren't directed towards me, even hearing them indirectly within like my family or comments eventually had me thinking that I had to look a certain way, right? So then became that pressure you know, created by society or within my family, you know, like it, it just all, I think it's all based on feelings. We like to say, oh, your words can't hurt me. But unfortunately, that's not true. Our suicide rates are insanely high because people use words not in nice ways. But I definitely think it's, it's all based on feeling. At what point did you look and say, this is not going to be my life anymore. Something is going to change. What did that moment look like? I have a little over a year sobriety clean time now, but I, for 17 years, you know, I went back and forth between drugs and alcohol and alcohol was always the crutch for me. I started on alcohol and then I would start using and then I would, you know, something would happen. Like the first time I got clean, I got pregnant with my oldest. So, you know, I, I thought, oh, yep, now I'm clean. I'm an, I'm an ex-drug addict and, but I can still drink and I never really correlated between the two addictions were connected. So I always continued to drink. And I did know for a really long time that my drinking was out of control. And then I ended up moving back to Grand Forks because I was living previously in Fargo. And when I moved up here and then I started getting back in with the crowd at the bars and I ran into old people I knew, you know, and the next thing I know, I'm back using again. And it kind of went like, that for um, many years, right? And then um, when I when my using got really heavy and the drinking kind of ceased to stop, um, I was in a for the last two years of my actual usage, um, I was in a, a very abusive 
drug-fueled relationship that got really, really scary for me. You know, I'm not going to go into much detail on that, but the thing that really clicked for me, and I'll just say this, is that the, my last incident with him was when we were going 120 miles an hour down downtown St. Paul blowing red lights and I have my 10-year-old daughter in the backseat. You know, I knew at that minute that her and I were completely indispensable to him. That's when it changed for me. Like, I just knew that I needed something different. So that's when I completely stopped my using. But it was when I got out of that that my drinking started taking off again. I was in the drug world for six years, not working or working odd jobs here and there. So coming back to reality, you know, and then trying to figure out who I am and move past all this trauma, I wasn't doing therapy at the time. And I just sank into an extremely deep depression. And my anxiety was so bad, I wouldn't leave the house. And, you know, so last summer, I really I met someone who was, you know, in a program And they had kind of educated me on it a little bit. And then I had an extreme blow up over something really, really small to a friend of mine. And that's when it clicked. That's when I was like, I am doing the same thing. Like there's got to be something different for me. My pattern of behavior was continuing, you know, to progress. I was back smoking weed again last summer and it was just... I was able to recognize that those old behaviors and that entire cycle was kicking back on, back in again. So I chose to take a chance and do something different. I tend to get in my head a lot. I overthink things. I tend to think some things are not a big deal where other things are a big deal. I have clearly some trauma that dates back to some of my earliest memories. And therapy is actually my lifeline. Um, it's a place I can go and I can, you know, we've, we've been actually exposing my childhood trauma one, one thing at a time, you know, which kind of leads, we bounce back and forth a lot, but it's really nice to actually feel the feelings that I had numbed for so long, but my therapy sessions almost leave me feeling free. It's almost a high in itself, to be honest, you know, like I go there and I walk out and the sun's brighter and the trees are greener. And I know that probably sounds really corny, but for someone like me, you know, all these, all these years of trauma, like it's, it's a whole new experience, I guess, to go and know that a lot of things weren't necessarily my fault. You know, I mean, did I play a part? Yeah. But a lot of the trauma stuff I didn't really have control over. For the majority of your adult life, you are either using recreational drugs and or alcohol. And so for the first time in your adult life, now you're sober. What was that like? Definitely a lot of emotions and I didn't know what they were, how to label them, why they were happening. You know, I still struggle with life on life's terms, right? It's like I said, for 17 years, I felt nothing. I mean, I guess I felt pain, but I would just drink or use again, you know, to not feel that until it wore off and then the cycle repeats itself. Now I feel all sorts of emotion, um, anger, sadness, you know, and being able to have those resources to reach out to when I do have those um, emotions are where where my my answers are. Sometimes do I necessarily think about using or drinking? 
Not as much. Um, I would say I haven't actually had like the urge to do so. Every once in a while, a thought would cross my mind like, oh, I don't want to feel this. I wish I could just numb it. Um, That's just not an option for me anymore. So definitely a mindset too, of wanting to be that way. Did you ever believe that any of the drugs or alcohol you used improved your life? I I guess at the moment, yeah, I thought they all did, (laughs) you know, improved my life because I didn't have to feel that was an improvement for me. Did it make me more efficient at at work? Maybe for a week or two, you know, until I didn't want to go to work, you know, Um, eventually it just consumed me. So, and that, that was the cycle. What reasons or justifications did you give yourself for using drugs or alcohol? You know, getting completely wasted all weekend or something, or I'm going to go home and crack a beer because it's been a hard day. Those for me are almost, those were like uh, signs, right? Or symptoms, I guess, for for my excuses to drink. So I don't, I try not to judge anybody on their drinking amount, but to me, I just feel it's, it's just legalized drugs. You've been to ground zero of addiction, and now you're back at 30,000 feet looking back on that time from a 30,000-foot view. What would you tell somebody who is currently going through addiction? Uh, There's definitely way more to life, clean and sober. I don't have to pick up a drink. I don't have to pick up a drug um, in order to appreciate value and live my life to the fullest. You know, I'm able to walk outside and take in everything. Um, I actually think because I'm so feeling based, right? I I actually think that I'm able to feel uh, life a whole lot deeper um, than I ever would have been able to even when I was clean but not sober, you know? Um, And... As far as celebrate, you know, like alcohol being okay, being on the side that I am right now, I think it's honestly just an excuse. How has your journey with addiction affected your outlook and your interaction with other people? My daughter, for example, is 13. And there are some certain characteristics. And she tells me all the time, Mom, I'm not you. I understand that. On the flip side, there are certain things that I do see as a pattern of behavior, right? I pick up on stuff like that. So I just tell her like, you know, I I see you doing such and such, tapping and clicking a pen consistently, you know, is almost like an addictive behavior, right? So I try to, I'm now trying to backpedal a little bit and teach her other better coping mechanisms, being involved in sports, be addicted to sports. I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie now, so I like to skydive and, you know, I still like to drive fast, but I don't, I try try not to, right? My, I would love to be a NASCAR. Anyway, the adrenaline is huge for me, but if you see or recognize within yourself the addictive behaviors, trying to channel that in a more positive direction before you, you know, start experimenting with drugs or alcohol, or you notice that you have the behaviors coming back, or if you've already struggled channeling it, you know, getting involved in some sort of treatment program or whatever, but then picking an activity that you're really interested in or something that you've always wanted to do and giving it your all and just going for it, I think would definitely decrease the amount 
you know, the chance for a relapse later. How did your daughter cope with what you went through? And I suppose to a certain extent, what you're continuing to go through. She was really supportive at first. And then once she kind of saw that I was for real, then she really started fighting it. I think we were at war for many months, you know, with defiancy and things like that. And it became a turning point when I started applying the principles of my program into my the way I mothered and into my personal relationships, pausing, patience, taking a step back, not raising my voice, trying not to talk with a tone. Sass was really big because when she does fire at me in that 13-year-old teenage <laughs> tone, you know, my first instinct is to, is to almost be defensive. And I'm really trying to take a more softer approach to that, you know, where now I just, I'm sorry you feel that way, you know? So our relationship over the summer within the last few months that I've been actually applying these principles has been absolutely outstanding. Do we still have times where, you know, we argue or disagree? Absolutely. She's still 13. But I, I think she's finally seeing the change within me and the progress that I have made. And She's actually starting to get involved with me, you know, when I when I go to um, participate in the in the program and be with my sober and clean friends that she actually is willing and wanting to now come along. What do you believe your daughter has to offer other kids who have a similar experience or are going through a similar experience? All she has is her her experience, you know, her hope, her strength, her story. I neglected her. I can only imagine how abandoned she felt, you know, having having a mom that was present, but not emotionally, mentally, or, you know, not even really there. So I think her being able to provide them maybe with almost an ear to listen, you know, for someone whose parents, you know, were sick like me, you know, that there there is hope and it, it can get better or maybe she even has like some advice for them, you know, like this, this is what you can do. This is, you know, I maybe I didn't get to do this, but I, I know that other people are doing this or something like that, you know, like maybe getting them involved, reaching out. If you could go back in time and share with your previous self something you've learned throughout your journey, what would you share with yourself or for other people that are going through this? Within my first year of my sobriety, I've definitely learned a lot of hard lessons um, that I don't want to repeat. But I guess just reaching out, really. Um, on Facebook, I'm part of a couple recovery re support groups, which is huge because I'm pretty much anonymous to 5,000 people. You know, So if I'm having a bad day, I can just put it on there. And the support that I get is absolutely amazing. If it's something I don't feel comfortable even talking about, with my sponsor about, or at first I'll put it on there and people are like, you need, you know, take this approach, reach out here, do this. And then, or you need to let your sponsor know this. So then I take necessary actions from there, but it's nice to kind of get a big, broad range of ideas because then I can, you know, cause I, I haven't had that validation. So for me, that's what I'm constantly seeking is like my validation, but my way doesn't always work. What I learned from the time I spent with these courageous people is the true value of connecting with other human beings. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is human connection. 
I hope you enjoyed our first episode. I invite you to stop by our website, theschoolofhardknocks.show. There you'll find more information and resources about this episode, and we'll see you back on the 1st of November for another in-depth journey right here on The School of Hard Knocks. Oh, 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 o